listening to Ping, a new podcast by Apenic discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. If you're new to our show and are wondering what this podcast is all about, each fortnight we chat with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they are doing and insights they've gained into the well-being of the internet. For those who've been listening, welcome back and thanks for the shares, feedback and reviews. And if you've subscribed, thanks for that too. Today, we welcome back APNIC's Chief Scientist, Jeff Houston, for his regular monthly chat. If you haven't been following the show, we've discussed a wide range of topics with Jeff, from Facebook and Slack's wide-scale outages to the merits of certificate revocation. Jeff, thanks for joining us again on Ping. Good morning. It's morning this time we're recording this, uh, and a bright sunny morning it is too, despite the fact that in Australia, winter is coming, <laughs> or at least where I live. I like your casual Game of Thrones reference, Jeff, which is a nice little segue into what we'll be chatting about today. So in this episode, we'll be focusing on a story that got plenty of airplay in October last year, which related to the widely popular Netflix show Squid Game. Don't worry, there won't be any spoilers if it's still on your watch list. The story, which is still playing out, mind you, and will for quite some time, involves South Korean internet service provider SK Broadband which is suing Netflix to pay for the costs from increased network traffic and maintenance work because of a surge in viewers since 2018. To give you some context on how an ISP can be in a position to sue a content provider for being so popular, the South Korean government introduced a network interconnection and compensation framework in 2016 and passed a new content provider's traffic stabilisation law in 2020 that has required large content providers Sands, Google and Netflix thus far to pay usage fees to local ISPs to serve their content to local users. For Netflix and Google, such laws go against the neutral nature of the internet and as such are remaining steadfast. Now while this story may be relatively new, it's actually a story that's been repeating itself for hundreds of years across multiple transit industries. Isn't that right, Jeff? Right. This is actually an example in Korea of a very, very old saga. Andrew Odslinko at the University of Minnesota uh, had done a huge amount of work in, in looking further and further back in time. A- and the tension's actually an old tension between content and carriage. And he actually discovered this unique example in the English waterway system, because before we invented large trucks, the only way to move bulky goods was to put them in a barge and set them into water, because water was the only way that you could apply a small amount of forward propulsion and move huge tons of material, because horses and carts just wouldn't do the job. Now, the canal operators were kind of unregulated. And what they very quickly discovered is that if you were carrying a ton of gold versus carrying a ton of, say, coal, you could charge the person who wanted their gold moved a lot, lot more than you could charge the person who wanted their coal move. And so the carriage folk kind of said, look, I'm the only way you're going to get your goods between you know, here and there, and I'm going to look under the cover, and if what you're carrying, what me to carry is valuable, I'm going to charge you more. And this kind of became a form of extortion. And of course, everyone went off to parliament and acts were made and so on and so forth. And we actually got the birth of the common carrier regime. And it goes back into these physical goods. And it's all about the fact that carrying a ton of stuff is the same effort. It doesn't matter whether it's gold or coal or anything else. I mean, there are some volume considerations perhaps, but a ton is a ton. And a common carrier is not liable for the goods they carry as long as they never look and as long as they carry all goods the same way. So let's fast forward a little bit with that principle in mind, because that was around the 18th century and go forward into the 19th century and the emerging mess that was the British mail system, postal mail. You see, the 19th century was transformative in so many ways in so many countries. Industrialization created an urban population that was displaced. They used to be rural. And oddly enough, because we kind of used school as not only industrial age childcare, but to amuse them, we taught them how to read and write bad idea. <laughs> and, and the first thing they wanted to do was write letters to the rest of their family. 
And so the written mail system, which previously was a luxury, started to become a desired commodity for everybody. But the royal mail system was bizarre. Like most postal systems, it was kind of a bit haphazard. And the system that most folk had sort of got into was receiver pays. So I write you a letter, Robbie. I'm like, very novel, isn't it? And I pass it to a messenger who comes past my house. I pay them nothing. And they send it to their friends and it gets relayed off and someone knocks on your door and says, I have a letter for you, Robbie. And it's from Jeff. And it's going to cost you $100 million. Now, you're either really curious and you're going to pay (laughs) or you're going to say, I refuse. Yeah, it would be the latter in my case, Jeff. And of course, the issue was to get the letter to your doorstep had cost the same, whether you refuse it or not. And this was grossly inefficient because then the postal service had to make sure that the postal rate included covering the costs of refusal. And the only folk who could actually submit letters into the mail system and not have the receiver pay were worthy members of parliament, who, as a favour to various mates, i.e. people who paid them money, would submit their letters into the postal system for free and pocket the difference. So a little bit of incipient corruption and all that kind of good stuff. But, you know, was a mess. Now, it's attracted the attention of many folk, but someone who just got incensed was Roland Hill, who in 1840 proposed to the worthy parliamentarians in the United Kingdom that we should adopt two principles. One, everyone pays the same price for a letter. And B, the sender pays. And so we use this concept of a postage stamp, and it cost one penny. And so for that one penny, you could put your letter in a Royal Mail mailbox, and it would be delivered to the addressee, and the receiver wouldn't pay. Universal price, assured delivery, done. Within a year, the volume of mail delivered by the Royal Mail system doubled, and it doubled again in the next 10 years. This was a revolution. We were getting more literate. A penny was, even then, not a lot of money. And it was a lot cheaper than what was going on before. And oddly enough, the Royal Mail system was still making, you know, its money. It wasn't going broke because it was about the right amount on average. Now, within 20 years, 90 other countries had adopted this. Everyone was releasing postage stamps. So it wasn't just the penny black, but that all got into this, right? But you've also got to understand around the 1850s, 1860s, and indeed 1870s and 80s, the great Irish potato blight, the huge amounts of immigration, particularly to the New World, and folk were moving. And they could write. They were literate. And they wanted to keep touch. And so there was this real pressure to do the same thing using boats. Now, there is a complication with this. Because while in the UK, it's all just the Royal Mail, when someone in America posts a letter to the United Kingdom, the US Postal Service gets your you know, artifact to a boat and the boat swims across the Atlantic, sails, steams, whatever it does at the time, and then passes this bag of mail to the Royal Mail and the UK folk have to deliver the mail. Now, the US Postal Service has incurred some costs and the Royal Mail has incurred some costs. And it's kind of a bit insane to cover your letter with the stamps from each of them just to make sure your letter got delivered. And so in 1875, after about 10 years of learned discussion, the Universal Postal Union was born, which was actually an agreement that across the, I think it was 90 odd, 100 odd countries at the time who'd signed up, they adopted a model where they would respect the postage stamp of the other country. So when this bag of mail with US postage stamps affixed to each letter arrived in the UK, it'd get delivered because it'd been paid for. The sender had paid. So we had this concept of, it was called ocean penny postage. I'm not even sure at the time it was one penny. I seem to uh, read somewhere, I recall it was tuppence halfpenny. Great cost. But that same model was actually, again, incredibly successful. Sender pays, low rate, doesn't matter which country you go to, it's assured delivery. 
Now, in the first instance, they used a system that we call today sender keep all. And the whole idea was, which seems a little bit weird, that you and I, Robbie, are countries now, and I deliver you a thousand letters a day and you pass over to me a thousand letters a day. Well, why should we charge each other? You've got the money, I've got the money. Whatever costs I incurred in delivering your mail, you incur costs in delivering my mail, we're even, right? Right. So long as you've got an even number of letters in your inbox as your outbox. Well, more to the point still, I might charge my people tuppence halfpenny, and you, Italy, might charge your people one halfpenny for international post. That's your right. But all of a sudden, I could use a horse and cart and ship all my letters to your country and drop them into the mail system for one halfpenny and get the postal system to deliver them around the world. And I'm a winner. And Italy's getting the world to do its bidding, but not paying for it. Now, in actual fact, it was the reverse. Italy found itself at acute disadvantage. And so they complained, of course, in all these meetings of the UPU, folk are ripping us off. And so we started the next thing, which was effectively terminal dues. Now, counting letters is a bit ridiculous, so let's just weigh them. <laughs> and let's make a universal transfer terminal due of two shillings a hundred weight. And so the bag comes in, we put it on some scales, it came from the US, at two shillings a hundred weight, the account between those two countries is debited by two shillings for the sender. And when the bag goes in the other direction, you know, and so on and so forth. And once a year, let's say, it was just once every regular time, we looked at the kilowatt of letters between the two countries and wrote each other, you know, some monetary chit for the balance. And oddly enough, it kind of worked for, geez, 50, 60 years. And then telephones came along. That is amazing and hard to fathom in times before the internet. It is amazing. But, you know, in some ways, their business was delivering letters. It wasn't about making it hard. And so... When the telephone system, actually, when the telephone system first started, there were a lot of telephone companies, a lot. It was a mess. No regulations. It was obviously a wild boom. But the issue was, how do I call you if you're a member of telephone company A and I'm a subscriber to telephone company B? Now, in the first instance, we couldn't. And so in the business world, which took this up enthusiastically, you had a whole bunch of handsets on your desk for each telephone company. This was insane. We needed to make it work better. And there were kind of two answers. The first answer, oddly enough, was the knee-jerk reaction, which happened in the United States and happened in many other countries at around the time, start of the 20th century, which was, we've got too many telephone companies. What if we just had one? Ooh, let's have one. And so AT&T did a rather bizarre deal with the US Congress, Theodore Vail, and said, one policy, one service, one operator, and it's me, said Theodore Vail. And I promise not to be an evil monopolist. Uh, and Congress bought it. <laughs> now, now, this promise lasted about five years, really. And then by the 1920s, it was all going a bit bad. But nevertheless, countries kind of solved this by having one operator per country of the telephone system. But what do you do internationally? Because once we started laying cables across the sea, party A could call party B and they were in different telephone companies. And so we took the telephone equivalent of the Universal Postal Union, which after a while became the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, and took this to them as kind of a treaty problem. How do we support this? Now, the answer, oddly enough, was actually an answer that was very similar to the postal system. When a subscriber in my country calls a subscriber in your country, our respective telephone operators incur cost. I've got to take the call all the way to the international gateway and then map that call across some piece of cable or these days satellite or whatever they want to use. And then you've got to take that call and map it to a subscriber and ring, ring, ring. Now, I wanted to preserve ease of use and sender pays was kind of what we'd got used to. 
If I dial you, it's my problem. If you dial me, it's your problem. You pay for the entire call. But these two providers have incurred cost. And so what they did was a bit like the postal union with weight of letters, actually had an international call accounting settlement fee. So many cents per minute per call, probably per second, because you know they could. And so all the calls going from Australia to the United States, we'd look at that call volume and tote it up every month. So the US terminated 3,000 call minutes. And in the same period, Australia terminated 1,000 call minutes. So Australia owed the US the equivalent cost of the net difference, 2,000 call minutes, because the US had done more work than Australia on behalf of this bilateral. So money was changed hands. It didn't take long to realise <laughs> that if I made my call charges to my customers outlandishly high and you maintained cheap, then all your people would call my people and you would pay. I remember travelling to France in the late 1980s and calling Australia was 300,000 million billion francs per second, yet calling the other way was a lot less. And, and the biggest example was calling to the United States. It cost the French a huge amount of money to call someone in the US, but AT&T had kept their rates low. So everyone phoned France, which meant AT&T had to pay France money. It wasn't long before everyone cottoned on that the US was a soft touch. And so AT&T was paying out millions of dollars in hard currency per month. And they didn't like it. They were actually America's largest employer. They probably were the richest company before divestiture. And this was a serious issue. I'm like the country of Laos. It was reported in the early 1990s that almost 90% of their sovereign wealth was based on payments from AT&T from the phone system. You know, entire African countries were propped up by AT&T. This whole issue that the ITU was a corrupt bunch of nefarious thieves, there was some substance of truth because that call accounting settlement system was so astonishingly abused. So we're about to head over to the internet and we're in the late 1980s and the internet's starting to take off. And you have to remember that one of the biggest lobbyists in Congress in Washington was AT&T. Now, when we were building the internet, we kind of had these two models to work with. One was packets and data is just computers at the ends of the telephone system. So we keep the notion of a call, a caller, and settlements. And oddly enough, if you look at the protocols that the telcos love, like X25, like Frame Relay, like ISDN, it really was the telephone system for computers. You called somebody and you paid. You exchanged data, but you paid because you called them, right? And that was what was being pushed by the Europeans. This was the new data protocol to use for the next millennium. But at the same time, the computer industry was busy experimenting with Ethernet and always on wires. This whole idea that there's no such thing as a call, it's just packets. And I don't need to divide it up into sender and receiver. I can call you, you can call someone else. You know, the packets can flow in various directions and it doesn't matter because it's just a wire. And I'm not trying to account for its usage call by call. Let's get rid of calls, right? So the internet takes off. Yay. The telephone guys go, you're using our wires and we've got a call accounting settlement problem and someone needs to pay someone else. And the internet folk said, go away. We're not going to do this. But what are you going to do? Well, oddly enough, the first, the first solution looked a lot like the first solution from the post office. Send to keep all. You're an internet provider. I'm an internet provider. You have paying customers. I have paying customers. Let's just keep our money in our own bank coffers and if we need to exchange traffic because one of your customers needs to send a packet to one of my customers, let's just call it quits. Now, oddly enough, this played right into AT&T's hands. And AT&T loved this kind of model because all of a sudden, they thought the future was still voice. 
they thought voice was keen forever. And so getting the data folk to come to an arrangement that got rid of, if you will, their long-term problem with voice settlements seemed to be like a solution from heaven. You know, this is great. Convinced the US to keep the internet out of the hands of the ITUT. Many battles have been fought and continue to be fought over the beauties of this deregulated model that basically left it to the market. Now, the market had its problems because I can set up a local ISP that is me and a few mates in my neighborhood, and I can go to someone like AT&T and say, you're an ISP and I'm an ISP, let's exchange traffic. And, And of course, this is the big ISP's nightmare because I'm a customer. And somehow I'm trying to hoodwink you into thinking I'm your peer. And AT&T sort of go, but where's your millions of dollars of investment? And I go, but but I've connected 10 houses. I'm an ISP. What's your problem? And they go, well, I've connected a few hundred million of these. Um, That's my problem. I've sunk in all this money and you're free riding me. And we started to work out that some relationships truly are peers, but many other relationships revert back into a far more traditional model of you're bringing more value into this relationship, therefore I have to pay. Now, the problem is that in the postal system, we could weigh letters. In the telephone system, we could measure the length of calls. In the internet, we can... I don't know what we can do. Tell you what, let's play bluff. (laughs) let's turn off all the lights. And what we see in front of us is a beady little pair of eyes. Let's figure out without any clues who's going to eat who. And the eater gets the money and the intended victim gets to pay in order not to be eaten. And that's all this is. That's the entire issue. And so this whole game of internet tiering and tier one and tier two was actually all a game of, I assert that I'm bigger than you and therefore you're a customer. Now, the beauty of that was If you were prepared to walk away and say, I don't care, then you were a peer. If you were the one that opened your mouth and said, no, 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 as soon as you say that, you've defined yourself as the customer. You need the other party and need means cost. And so we started to sort of set up this hierarchy. So, okay, we've gone forward about 150 years now, and we're starting to get pretty good at this game. You know, the industry is used to this whole model of tiering. There's local networks, there's regional aggregators and national networks, and there's the international big people, of which there are about, even today, only five or six, that operate international infrastructure. And the whole thing is predicated on the fact, oddly enough, that this is still computers phoning each other. All the content is still in someone else's computer. The network doesn't have content. So we're very sophisticated at this, but something happened just at that realization that by making the content folk the same as customers, the carriage folk are winning, but the content folk really are not happy because they're paying. And to get their money back from customers, they have to establish a second relationship with the customer. And this was difficult. Paywalls, all kinds of things were kind of going, oh, don't do that. So we're emerging not just a tension between various internet providers, but a tension between carriage and content once more. That really old thing of a ton of gold versus a ton of coal comes back again. And the first time this really came to the fore was when I suppose it started to get serious and money entered the game. We started deploying national broadband systems starting uh, in the early 2000s and started to roll this out as everyone's connected. And there was a classic interview um, from someone who uh, has disappeared into ignominy, Edward Whittaker. He was the CEO of Southwest Bell, and he was talking about upstarts like Google and Microsoft Network and Vonage and all the rest of these content people. And the quote was, well, how do you think they're going to get customers? They're going to get them through a broadband pipe. We have them. Now, what they want to do is use my pipes for free. And I ain't going to let them do that because we spent a lot of money building all these tubes 
And, and quite frankly, the bankers want some return on that invested capital. So somehow, the folk who are using my tubes, Google, Microsoft, Vonage, are going to have to pay me. Why should they be allowed to use my pipes for free? We had this whole free internet thing years ago, but now money's involved. And quite frankly, if content wants to use my network to access my users, get the my's in here, my users, then they have to pay me because I'm the gatekeeper of the users. Now, this fight was big time, went all the way up to Congress, bounced around in regulatory circles. And while the US was certainly the forefront of this, it's a fight that happened again and again and again. If content wants to use my network, content has to pay. And it got even a bit more subtle than that. The content folk were busy complaining, saying, why should I pay to use your cruddy network? Make it better and I'll pay. Oh, so you will pay, will you? So what if I prioritise your traffic? What if for a price, I offer quality of service and I kick out all the other hobos and put your gold-plated packets on my wires at you know a phenomenal price that you're going to pay and I'll deliver the service that you're after? And some content folk actually went for it. For a small amount of time, Netflix actually paid Comcast. Now, what did Comcast actually do in terms of quality of service? Well, if you've looked at quality of service, you'll realise that quality of service is almost a contradiction in terms. We don't know how to do it. There's no such thing as magic. There's no un otherwise unused pots of bandwidth out there. If I'm going to put a packet on the wire, I'm not going to put someone else's. You know, it's all just a rationing problem. And so in some ways, this was just a crude extortion on the part of the carriage industry. And the content folk, really were not happy, really not happy. And, and so this fight persisted on. But now the whole idea is it wasn't just a fight in the market. It was a fight with the regulator in the room as well. And, and this is where things got extremely interesting because there's now kind of three groups at the table. There's the carriage operator there's the content streamer, we call them today, is the content industry, and there's the poor benighted user. Now, there's no argument. The user ultimately funds the other two. But the issue is, where does the money go and who pays who? So the first option, which oddly enough has become the current option for most of this, is I separately pay for Disney, for Netflix, for Amazon Prime, I pay separately to the streamer and I pay my ISP for access. Now, oddly enough, whether the streamer pays the ISP as well or not doesn't matter to me realistically. It's not my problem. But why should they pay? Now, Facebook's first network had a data center in San Francisco, a data center in the east coast of the US, and a data center somewhere in the middle. Let's call it Dallas and proudly boasted they were a global network. Now, this, of course, is nonsense. Uh, and more to the point, the carriage industry had to deliver Facebook users to one of those three locations. So there was an extraordinary amount of cost involved. And if you weren't somewhere close to one of those three locations, Facebook was slow. And, and the content folk very quickly grokked onto the fact that if you want speed and if you want quality, you've got to get close to the user. And so the carriage industry was failing. Content wanted more. Now, the one thing we have seen over the last 20 years, which has shaped this industry, has actually been a shift in what we call scarcity and abundance. The whole reason why governments used to build submarine cables is that private industry couldn't afford them. It was really expensive. And it was so expensive, it was rationed by price. To send a 30-word telegram from Australia to England in 1880 cost an average working man's three weeks' wages. Only newspapers could afford this. And the whole reason why it was expensive was it was difficult to maintain. It was an extraordinary feat of technology at the time. It cost so much money that only governments could afford it. Now, we have changed so many things you know, in technology. And one thing we have done is, oddly enough, computing is not expensive. What's on my wrist 
is probably a supercomputer in 1980s terms. What's in my handset phone is a supercomputer. So computing isn't expensive. It's abundant. Storage. How much does it cost for a terabyte of disk space? Not a lot. So storage is cheap. What about bandwidth? Well, it costs a billion bucks to build a massive submarine system, cable system that spans, let's say, 10,000 kilometres. You might be lucky, it might only be half a billion. But it's been that price forever. It was that price when we did 500 megabit per second electro-optical amplification systems with copper. And it's that price today when Google builds something that is purely fibre and delivers terabits. So if you think about it, bandwidth is actually in abundance. There's no shortage. We don't need to ration it. So let's think about what I want to use that abundance for. I can either take your packets and take them across the globe, or I can replicate my service and content under your very nose. And you only need to go across town. I'll pre-provision just in case you need it. But isn't that expensive? No. Computing, storage, bandwidth is abundant. It's really cheap. So Google have hundreds of data centers, Cloudflare, Akamai. You go through the list of content data networks and the name of the game is build more and replicate more so that the user experience is phenomenally cheap, phenomenally fast and of extraordinary capacity. So I really can stream 8K video streams. And oddly enough, it's really cheap because it's abundant. I feel that we're getting closer to the present situation that's playing out in Korea. Am I right, Jeff? We're circling in on on the issue because the content industry, which has all the money, decided that the carriage industry wasn't doing their job right. They were still trying to ration. And the content industry was saying, don't want any of that nonsense. I don't want what you're building. And the corollary is, if you don't want what they're building, go and build it yourself. Every major cable system over the last five years either has one or more of Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft as major partners in in the investment, or it doesn't happen. So the all build it yourself, the content folks said, fine, it's not a problem. We will build it ourselves, and we're not sharing. This is not a public system. And so this is what we've built. But the one thing that we haven't done in content is enter my house yet. (laughs) We stop at this kind of last mile access network because the economics of access is always difficult. So all these broadband networks, which on the whole cost around two to $3,000 per household in high density suburban and in low density suburban cost an extraordinary amount. You know, it's just not going to work for the content folk. They're not going to build end to end. They're going to build to the local shopping mall, otherwise known as the data center, and it's up to someone else to then build onwards. So what did they do in Korea? Korea sort of bit the pill of broadband infrastructure very, very early on. Their cities are high density, massive multi-tenement apartments, and were just perfect for high density fiber reticulation. Fiber up the riser, gigabit presentation to every unit. This was fantastic. Fastest broadband in the world, number one on the OECD list, bask in the reflected glory of a job well done. Or so they thought. But the issue really wasn't that absolute last mile from the socket in the wall of the apartment down to the basement. The issue was from the basement onward and out to the data centre. And it was built by folk who were telco people. So the word Ethernet is a swear word. MPLS is probably a swear word. The whole idea that I need to put high-density fiber and just run straight Ethernet through my reticulation network was an anathema. They couldn't bring themselves to do it. I remember here in Australia, a major, well, telco really, masquerading as an ISP, badly, uh, was rolling out DSL. They were doing one to two megabits per customer. They had these concentration points that put up somewhere between 30 and 50,000 DSL customers into a DSLAN, into an access point. The access point was serviced by a highly uh, available and very reliable 150 megabit link. 
Let me see that again. That's 50,000 people with a rate of one megabit. That's 50 gigs if they all tried to use it at once, feeding into not a 50 gigabit pipe, not even a 50 megabit pipe, you know, a 150 megabit pipe. And it's kind of don't all use it because if you do, it's not going to work for anyone. Well, they did the same in Korea. They did almost precisely the same. Now, I don't think it was ATM at the time, but the back end was phenomenally poorly built. And the other thing they did was that they'd realised that consumers didn't have a clue what they were buying. And so the only way to get them to be confident in buying it was to give them a flat fee. So, so many won, 20 universal currency units uh, a month, bought you this gigabit service, knock yourself out. So they did. Samsung, the television manufacturer, was busy putting in high-definition television in 2012. Remember the 3D television and all that kind of stuff? 4K HDTV is a lot of data. And there wasn't an awful lot of quality content. So Samsung, for the folk who bought Samsung televisions, had their own video library of phenomenal, high-definition, high-quality video that you could stream. Great. So Korean users did. And the network feeding all these gigabit broadbands melted. Just didn't work. Just completely overrun with folk trying to stream too much traffic. So they play things seriously in Korea. So the first thing the Koreans did was say, perhaps politely, perhaps impolitely, I wasn't in the room, please stop it. And Samsung said, basically, um, you put in this network, we're using it. What's the problem here? If you want to build more capacity, go build it. That's not our problem. We're the television people. And so the provider said, hang on a second. We know your MAC addresses of your televisions. They all have the same prefix. That's this thing about Ethernet addresses. Every manufacturer got given a unique front end. And we see that on our network. And we're not going to send packets to those MAC addresses anymore. Whoops. That was a serious threat. And Samsung and, and the relevant uh, ISP went screaming off to the legal system, the courts and the regulator going, unfair, unfair, unfair. And it was almost an exact replay of the earlier uh, argument in the United States over why should content pay extra for carriage when the user has already paid? Why is this not double dipping? Now, it got sorted out in the basis that, that Samsung at the time won, if winning is, is, is the right term, they didn't have to pay the Korean network operators any extra to stream this data. Great. But it was never resolved. Did the ISP operators massively revamp their internal infrastructure? They couldn't afford to. They didn't have any money. They were just barely sucking oxygen as it was. So the problem was just sitting there waiting for the next issue. Cue Netflix. Now, CDNs really took off and video streaming really took off between 2012 and today. And now, you know, 80% of all the paid for content on the internet is video streaming and quality matters in the video world. So the problem surfaces again and again and again. Every time Netflix opens up in a new market, Everyone else has a problem, and Netflix doesn't pay for infrastructure. They, they know better than that. Customers pay their ISPs to have enough infrastructure to support whatever the customer wants. And if the answer is, well, you know, we didn't build it right, then that's not either the customer's problem or Netflix's problem. If the customer starts using the network, why should the network operator say no? Let's pause for a second and think about this. In the days before COVID, I used to fly on aeroplanes. I remember it well. Ah, And oddly enough, the more I flew, the more they loved me. There was this positive feedback loop that said, you're a frequent flyer. You need more rewards to incent you to fly more because then we make more money. This virtuous circle actually found that there were all these perks for frequent flyers. Because more use actually created greater benefit, created greater scale, created greater income, 
and it was kind of an escalating virtuous circle of usage. This industry is one of the few that had precisely the opposite. We demonised the heavy users. We demonised the folk who actually used the network and tried to get rid of them. And sort of the real question is, why do you hate your best customers? What's wrong with you that your business models are so broken that more use actually means for you a worse outcome? What did you get wrong? First question. And secondly, why is it my fault? You've got a lousy business plan, I admit. Your network isn't up to it. That's clear. But if I'm going to fix it, I own it. Why should I pay you to continue to do a shocking job? Because there's no difference with what you're doing now and basic extortion and blackmail. Nice network you've got here, nice service you've got here, nice content you've got here. Pity if I damage it. You need to pay me to stop me from damaging it. Just strikes me as as the same crude blackmail over the years. And, And so in some ways, the carriage industry was sitting there trying to exploit an historical cosy relationship with government, going, do our bidding, we're being done over. Now, in Korea, it had a separate twist because Netflix is not a Korean company. It's an American company. Those Americans are running over our valuable network. They're leveraging their business model and taking all their profits and extracting them and moving them elsewhere, and we're paying. This should not happen. Our national pride has been insulted. Our national investment is being run over by these foreign folk. This is all wrong. I need government relief. This is an international crisis. It's not. It's nothing like that. Like I said, a bad business model is the fault of the business owner, not everyone else's fault. And so this goes on again and again and again, that folk who are trying, if you will, to respond to opportunities presented by broadband infrastructure are actually encountering issues where the original infrastructure provider got it wrong. They got the business model wrong. They got the engineering wrong. And as we continue to build out this network, and we have changed the network over the last 10 years by orders of magnitude, the amount of data we're pushing around is probably a thousand times more than it was 10 years ago. And the reason why is that What we're doing is pre-provisioning those front-end centers, those data centers, with all of the video libraries. Whenever you move all of your mail, all of your docs, everything that's in the cloud actually surrounds you and moves with you, that they load it up just in case you happen to be there, because that's what's fastest. That's what's most efficient. But what that means is that when I am close to my data, and I have a capable piece of infrastructure, when I'm only 10 milliseconds away from the action, then I can stream at speeds that are about the same as I can stream across a local area network. I can stream really quickly. So I'm going to put that local access network under undreamt of pressure. Now, how do you react to that? Do I have to build a terabit local reticulation system? I can't afford it. It's not that easy to put 60, 100 core fiber down streets and terminate terabit services at the nodes to feed into houses. We really don't know how to do that. But what else are you going to do? Because if I really am offering 10 gigabit access pipes into into every unit, every apartment, and they all start streaming at once with multiple parallel 8K video streams, uh, problem. Now, one reaction is we need new rules. We need new rule makers. We need more regulation. We need to create certainty and surety. So back to the old ways. Well, it's a typical answer, particularly the folk who feel that they're being lent on go to an umpire going, hey, umpire, that's unfair. Provide some relief. The other way to look at this is it's always been a market. It's always been deregulated in that respect. That, quite frankly, in this market of ideas, If I have a way of doing this uh, and it works, then more power to me, I capture that market. So how should I get around the problem of not having enough reticulation? Shrink the data center 
down to a rack unit, shrink all that storage and put it just out the street and service 100 houses, not 100,000. So this is leaning into your theory of serving data from the last mile rather than serving it from data centres, which would mean hosting and serving it directly on the network. Right, this is just abundance of technology. And why stop at a data centre? At some point, you look at all those little spacecraft up in space who are sitting comfortably below the Van Allen belt, so there's not an awful lot of radiation. And you sit there and go, well... Why don't I put in not just a router, not just a little laser cannon to send data across to other spacecraft? Why don't I whack in a petabyte of storage and a streaming processor? The answer is, why not? What's stopping you? Well, cost. But don't forget, in the silicon industry, cost yesterday is not cost today. It's a different equation. So I think we're going to find that this march of data through the network towards the user hasn't finished. That's still going. And the other thing I think we're going to find, and we are finding, is that the tensions in this industry between content and carriage actually become a tension between applications and the way services work and the underlying common shared platform. Because the more I can provision up front, the more I can preload, the more that device, which has an extraordinary amount of computation, code, software inside it, you can actually do the right thing almost autonomously. I don't need to rely on the network if I pre-provisioned to make that device work. And so oddly enough, this whole issue of the death of transit is actually pushing at the edges of going, how close can I bring content and service to everybody? And I'm not sure we know what the answer is. Because if the answer is, well, it's just the cost of computing, well, you know, it's getting cheaper every year and nothing's stopping us yet. We've yet to reach those hard physical boundaries. It's the cost of bandwidth. Yeah, right. You know, same issue. It's the cost of storage. Again, same issue. And so in some ways, this is a really exciting tension because its resolution is not more rules. Any country that thinks that by invoking regulations, they will actually advance the case is on a strange set of drugs. Because once I invoke regulations, all I've done is reinstated what used to be the norms 20 years ago. And I've condemned that regime to sit there and go, what happened to our glorious broadband network? Why isn't anyone using it? Why can't my users use Netflix? And the answer is, well, you know, you're regulated such that it wasn't possible anymore. Sorry, but this doesn't work that way. And the only way, uncomfortable as it sounds sometimes, And as uncomfortable as the screams of protest might be, if you want to push this forward and actually make a more capable, faster, bigger, better system, then we've got to do this with a light weight of regulation and restraint because any such restraint and regulation is regressive rather than progressive. Where have we come? How much data is moved in the network today? Well, petabytes. How much data was moved 10 years ago? Less than a thousandth of that. We have achieved what was never dreamt possible. Never. In less than a lifetime, in a decade. And part of the reason why is actually unleashing those market forces of technology and evolution directly into the market and not waiting for permission, waiting for everyone else. It's actually based on upsetting everyone else and based on deliberate disruption. And oddly enough, the outcomes have been phenomenal, and the price is upsetting incumbents as a continuous state. And uncomfortable as that might be, the outcomes are actually amazing. The outcomes are allowing us to solve problems, to achieve things that would never be capable in any other way. So yes, there are some downsides. Yes, it swings and roundabouts. But on the whole, what do you want? And and if we're truly in a market-based system, What we're really doing is what we want. We're doing what I want. Thank you, everyone. And we're doing it for you too. And I think that's a good thing. Indeed. And ultimately, it aligns with the old adage that the customer is always right. So if indeed carriers do regard content providers as their customers, then they should be actually listening to them and working with them, as you said, in trying to bring the content closer because the pipes can't handle it. And it's too costly to build those pipes to be able to handle it. So take a play out of their book 
and make the content more hyperlocal. Well, that was the whole thing about international. We found that we were jumping so far ahead of the submarine cable industry. We wanted more than they could deliver. We wanted on-demand content streaming at phenomenal speed. And the real issue is that's going to cost you an extraordinary amount of money and won't work very well. Hmm. What if I bring the content over to the other side of the cable and simply avoid you as a bottleneck? Oh, I guess that would work, says the submarine cable provider, wondering what just happened. Uh, and, And that's what we've done time and time again. Ultimately, what drives this is indeed customer money, is the consumer. And the consumer, in a fully deregulated economy, what the consumer wants is what the consumer gets. And again, applying... Adam Smith's invisible hand to this, as long as it remains basically competitive, the cost of those goods and services is reflective of the cost of generating them. It's not reflective of monopoly rentals and distortion. And so the real job of regulation is actually making sure that monopoly capture doesn't happen, not to put up artificial playpens and jam everyone down saying, that's your job, that's not your job. That's, that's a silly way of looking at it and ultimately in an inefficient and expensive way. Well, there still seems to be more juice left in this argument to squeeze out, even though it has been playing out for centuries thus far. And I'm sure that many other regulators around the world are watching these proceedings in Korea closely to see who will blink first. As I said at the start, Robbie, the best arguments are the old arguments, because every time we do another round, we just get better at the argument. We love them, because... These are old arguments and they're still very enjoyable. I tend to agree with you. And maybe there's a potential Netflix show in all of this. Hopefully not Squid Game-esque though. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again, Jeff, for taking us on this historical journey to give us some really important context on this issue. Thank you. And uh, thank you listeners for persisting for so long. Thanks a lot. Yes, thanks to everyone who's made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apenic.net or our Apenic social media channels. And be sure to check out the Apenic website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.